either be banished from the community or he could be given capital punishment. Now, this is because he opposed the doctrine of the Trinity and he opposed the doctrine of infant baptism. And so he could be banished or they could give him capital punishment. After consulting with similar councils in Basel, Bern, Zurich, and Schaffhausen, the council voted for the latter. And on October 26, 1553, Servetus was burned at the stake. John Calvin, who many of you have heard of, famous reformer, concurred with the judgment, although he argued that Servetus should be given the more humane execution of being beheaded. I would say that that's a human impulse that caused those who claim to be Christians, to make the choice that they did. Another story. In the early 1980s, Marion Gwynn was a member of the Collinsville, Oklahoma Church of Christ. She was a single mother who began an affair with a non-church member, was found out, and was eventually disfellowshipped by the church for her immorality. However, because Ms. Gwynn, in advance intentionally withdrew from the fellowship of the church when she found out that the elders intended publicly to announce her sins. She was able to file suit against the church for invading her privacy, and she won. In fact, she won several appeals and was eventually awarded a very large sum of money. And I remember very clearly that being broadcast through Churches of Christ. Now, what's interesting is that I would say that just like in Michael Servitz's situation, that there was human impulse again. In fact, I would say that despite the best intentions of the Collinsville elders, that human impulse caused them to publicly announce her sin and to deal with her the way they did even after she had withdrawn from the church. Well, things have changed. In our North American context, there are few places where church doctrine and public opinion run so contrary to each other quite to the extent as what happens in the case of church discipline. It's very hard to convince those in the world that the church has the right to say anything to anyone, member or not, about who sins. We live at a time when notions of privacy and live and let live attitudes rule the day, even in the church. Most people, including many Christians, just don't see where it's the place of a Christian to interfere in the lives of others when those others are apparently guilty of violating the teachings of Christ. And, they would say, with good reason. When we're quoting Jesus, we say, He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And that, I think, establishes our attitude about sin. We quote Jesus when we say, Judge not, lest you too be judged. Scripture says, Forgive as you have been forgiven. Love holds no record of wrongs. And so I think sometimes we're a bit hesitant and even see the legitimacy of backing away when someone is caught in sin. Well, this morning I'll make some comments uh, about all of that. And to what I think 
our response should be to sin. The topic comes up because this is one of the lessons uh, in the life group study that we've been doing, so it's not as though we've got some gross sin in our church and Kelly's thinking that we need to deal with this. Are we going to back away and be like the world? Are we going to deal with it? That's not the situation. One of the beautiful things about going through a book when you're doing preaching is that there's just, it's the next verse. If it happens to apply to somebody's life, that's wonderful, but it's just the next verse. And in this case, it's just the next story in the life of Jesus. I thought about, I was tempted to maybe brush over this one. This is one of those topics which uh, most people have some kind of opinion on. When someone sins, we're supposed to be loving and gracious, and if the church comes down hard on the sinner, then that's a problem. Other people would say, no, we need to call sin, sin, and not be lax. And so I'm thinking that no matter what I say today, you are going to have roast preacher for lunch today. (laughs) But I do have some opinions about this. The last time I checked, sin does, does take place in our church. Jesus does teach about this subject. Paul has some things to say, and so I want us to look at this passage together in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 and following. And if you don't normally follow along, I really encourage you to, to grab your Bible, grab the Pew Bible, look at this text, and follow along with me, uh, because I think this is an important uh, text for us this morning. Now, I want to tell you, by the way, when you start reading this, you look at verse 15, there's immediately one thing you see, especially if you look at an NIV, is that there's a footnote. It makes the comment about the words against you being in or not in this verse, and there is a manuscript problem there. We have about 5,000 New Testament manuscripts from the ancient world, and there were times when there are differences that creep into those manuscripts among those 5,000. And so in this case, someone at some point copying the Gospel of Matthew put in the words against you, or in some case that someone took it out, we don't know which it is. Did Jesus say the words against you or did he not? We don't know. I don't think it makes a huge difference in either case. So we're going to go ahead and not deal too much with that one, but it is there just in case you wanted to know. First, as we look at this text, and I do want you to kind of glance at it, I just want you to take note of the fact that as you read this text, as with so many others, attitude is absolutely huge, and it's huge in their circumstance. In the case of someone who is sinning against you, and let's take for a moment the text is saying that, that this is talking about someone who has sinned against you. The fact is is that Scripture says that love is not self-seeking. Scripture says that love is not easily angered. Scripture says that love keeps no record of wrongs. And the point is, Even if you are sinned against, you need to let go of your bitterness. And so if anything, we've got to make clear from the outset that Matthew 18.15 is not there in order for anybody to make retribution for wrongs committed against them. It's simply against the Christian gospel to think in those terms. And yet I think that's exactly what we sometimes do. When somebody sins against me, I tend to want to get them back. And so do you. It's the most natural response in the world. And yet my impression is that Jesus calls to something completely different. He has a higher calling for us. 
And so while there might be room for us to go to those who've sinned against us and say something to them, and indeed there is room for that in the gospel, we can't allow that for a moment to be simple retribution for what it is that someone has done against you. Matthew 5.23 says this, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. If someone has something against you, you have the responsibility of reconciling with your brother or sister. Because God wants us to build relationship, not break it down. And this passage isn't intended in any way to break down relationship. Matthew 5, 38 says, You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And the specific admonition from Christ is, we're not about retribution. We're called to service. We're called to love. And as you approach this text, there has to be an attitude on our parts of wanting, more than anything, the relationship to be reconciled between you and somebody who has sinned against you. And so you think right now of somebody in your mind who has sinned against you. Someone that you think, oh man, they have mistreated me. There are very few of us who don't have somebody in mind. Scripture calls, Jesus calls you to an attitude about that person that is simply different than the attitude that the world would hold. In fact, Scripture calls you in those passages from Matthew chapter 5 to make a specific effort toward reconciling reconciling with that person. And if part of Matthew 18, 15 is an attempt on your part to reconcile with that person, then you're following the spirit of the text. But if retribution is what you're about, then you're indeed not following that text at all. So that's the first thing. This is not about retribution. But secondly... If this passage is just talking about sin and you catch someone in sin and and those words against you are to be taken out of there, then they have sinned, they violated Christian teaching, and there needs to be still a healthy attitude on your part toward the sinner. Now here, I think, is the key to the attitude in this case. I want you to notice something about this passage. Look at Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. And just see for a moment what that's about. Verse 3 says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then look down at verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go on to look for that one who has wandered off? And then glance down at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or in other words, as this goes on, 
over and over and over again, you need to forgive. And my point there is that this passage about reconciling with your brother who has sinned is right in the middle. It's right in the context of all of these other stories about Jesus teaching reconciliation. He's talking about forgiveness. He starts in chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, talking about having the humility of children and accepting children. He goes on to say that we simply are not going to be put in that position of judging others or we, maybe we are in that position, but we shouldn't be. God calls us to something else. And that's the context for these verses talking about reconciling with someone who has sinned. So if that's the whole context, forgiveness and grace and humility, then it makes me think that as one approaches those who have sinned, that that's the attitude Jesus wants us to share together as we do so. Now, my point with all of that is to say this passage is not intended to dump people out of the church. Matthew 18, 15 and following is not intended for us to be able to kick people out. This is not like, here are the steps you take when some gross sinner has offended you and you want to be biblical while you're getting rid of them. Make sure that you follow these steps. So here's point one and point two and point three and point four, and then you can throw them out and feel great about it. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. The whole context here is reconciliation. The whole context is forgiveness. The whole context is relationship. And so sinners need to be dealt with fairly, with compassion, with care and concern. Jesus is not saying, here's how you go about putting people out of the fellowship. He's saying, here is how you keep them in and stay in relationship with them. His purpose from the outset here is reconciliation. Now, all of that said, that's the backdrop to the passage. That's the attitude that we're supposed to take. Here we come into this passage with a certain mindset. How am I going to approach the question of when somebody sins against me? And of course, what I've just said is we need to have our attitudes right. Now, nonetheless, there are, I think, four steps that we need to take. And I don't want to take these four steps in like method in a cookbook. We're not developing a chemical here, and so here's the way you put it together. But these are, in fact, ways of approaching those who sinned against us. Jesus calls us to this pattern. So verse 15, the first point is, go and show the sinner his fault just between the two of you. Cleve, could you please cycle through and, and go down in, my, in the PowerPoint there to my points? This is my fault, not his. Keep going there. Perfect. Number one, thank you. Go and show the sinner his fault just between the two of you. Now, this is supposed to happen, folks, before you gossip with somebody else about that sinner. This is supposed to happen before you tell an elder. This is supposed to happen without you holding a grudge. This is supposed to happen without an attitude of judgmentalism. This is supposed to happen with an attitude of reconciliation and love. And the goal is reconciliation between this person and God and this person and you. 
God wants you to reconcile with your brother. And so Jesus says the first thing you do when there's a problem between you and somebody else or somebody's been caught in a sin and you recognize it or they've sinned against you, you go and talk to them. And you know how many problems would be averted within relationships if we would follow this practice. Oh, but we don't. I don't. I can't tell you the number of times when I walk out of Chris Bailey's office having said something that I shouldn't have said. And every time I want to kick myself and say to myself, Kelly, you hypocrite, you did it again. But I do that. There are times in my life when I talk about somebody else and I haven't talked to them first. And unfortunately, you do it too. And Jesus doesn't want us to. He knows how bad it is for the church. He knows how bad it is for the kingdom. He knows how bad it is for the sinner when we do that. But sometimes we do it. God, help us not to do that. Now, again, the rigid following of this step here isn't the purpose. I don't go and talk to the person with the attitude of, well, I'll get this out of the way. I'll go and talk to them, and at least then I can say, well, I talked to them. I talked to them about this. They didn't change, but I talked to them. Scripture called me to that. Jesus asked me to do it, and I filled that obligation. Now, let's get rid of them. The point is reconciliation. The point is the desire to see a person restored to the Lord. The point is to see your relationship with that person restored. That's what Jesus wants for you. That's the attitude with which, with which one must approach. Matthew eighteen fifteen and following. Second point, Cleve, please. If you will not listen, Jesus says, take two or three others with you and talk to him again. Now, again, the purpose is not to check off steps on the checklist. Went and got my two or three witnesses, got these people. We went and talked to them, we've taken care of that. Now what? The object is to reconcile. Notice that you don't just take anybody with you. You take, it specifically says, witnesses, those who can testify to this person's character and their actions, somebody who knows them, preferably even close friends where there is relationship. And that's because you're not trying to follow a procedure. You're trying to help save someone for God. You're trying to rebuild a life. And your attitude needs to reflect the rebuilding of that life. Thirdly, Cleve, you tell it to the church. Now, folks, this is where we so often go astray. We think that if somebody has sinned against us and we've checked off talking to them personally and we've checked off taking two or three witnesses with us to talk to them, that it's now time for us to tell the church. It's time to bring their name up. They've refused to repent. Their behavior has not changed. It's time to take them before the church and let everybody know what's going on. But the purpose for taking them to the church 
the issue to the church is exactly the opposite of that attitude. Notice that the text specifically says, and if they won't listen even to the church, which implies to me that when you go to somebody with the church, that you go to reconcile them to the Lord with the church. You tell the church, not so that the church will kick them out the doors. You tell them, tell the church with the specific purpose of having the church make the effort to reconcile that person back to Christ. And what I may well mean when I say that, although i got to think things through, is that every person in the church who has any kind of relationship with that person or knowledge of them needs to go and attempt to help that person reconcile with God. That means that an entire body of people may well need to go and help bring that person back to Christ. You tell it to the church so that the church will love them. You tell it to the church so the church will try and bring them back. And that means, sometimes, all of us. You and I know situations where there are people who have gone and done what God did not want them to do and they weren't ready to come back. And there were people who went and talked to them and it didn't work. Two or three people went and talked to them and it didn't work. I don't know if I've ever seen a situation where an entire body of people said, we love this person in the Lord so much that we are all going to go and show him or her how much we love them and attempt to reconcile them back to Christ. I don't know that I've ever seen it done. And so it doesn't surprise me that we're not as successful at helping to bring these people back as we need to be. Because I'm not sure we really do what Jesus calls us to do. We're way too quick to check off the steps in the procedure. And all the while, Christ is asking the whole church to let this person know how dear to them their fellowship is, how much they love them, how much they want them to stay in the Lord. And that's a challenge. That's a bit uncomfortable. It's easy for two or three people who kind of know that person to go. Maybe you care deeply for them. But to have a whole church go, that's more difficult. But it might be exactly what God is suggesting and what Christ is suggesting to us in terms of helping reconcile a person to the Lord. That an entire body of believers who sees a person's sin goes and makes an attempt to bring them back to Christ. Does that mean that we all show up to their door at once, one night? Maybe. What would you do if 250 people showed up at your door to tell you how much they loved you? Maybe you'd go... Forget it. (laughs) But you may well respond to the love that these people have for you as I think Christ wants a person to respond. And so we go as a family to care for a family member who has gotten off track. 
until the body of Christ as a body attempts to reconcile the sinner, we've not really done what God calls us to do. It's kind of like one of those interventions that we see on TV. A whole family comes together and tries to change somebody's life because they love them, and that's what the church would be doing as well. And then finally, fourth, Cleve. Finally, if they will not listen, Christ says you treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. Now, at this point, I think that there is some kind of breaking of relationship. It's difficult sometimes to know exactly what that means. Paul tells us not even to eat with the immoral Christian who refuses to repent. But even here, I would say, there needs to be some caution. And I hope when I say this that I'm not just biting off something from the world and eating that and taking it into my Christian way of thinking. There needs to be some caution. How is it that Jesus treated tax collectors? How is it that Jesus treated sinners? Well, I think through my New Testament, and I think of uh, Matthew. He was a tax collector. Or I think of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. Both examples of Jesus taking those people and rebuilding their lives. Well, the woman caught in adultery, she was a sinner, caught right in the act. And Jesus says, go and sin no more. And the woman who wipes his feet with her hair, she was a sinner. But Jesus forgave her. Now, obviously, in those cases, there was repentance. There was a person who came back to Christ. But it just strikes me that when I think about Jesus in relationship to those who sin, I tend to think in terms of someone who forgives and who loves. And I know that there's a point at which the church has to say, we are, in fact, going to withdraw fellowship from you in some way. And the practicalities of that, I've seen it done in all kinds of different ways. But dominant, dominant in that action, in the teaching of Jesus, is grace and mercy and love. And so I turn to Galatians chapter 6. Turn there with me if you would, please. Galatians chapter 6. And it says this, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person, and what does it say? Gently. You should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something, when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. And those last few verses are a little bit thorny. But I think the point is this. 
Because you wonder, well, what sin am I going to be trapped in when I go to talk to somebody else about their sin? Is the problem that uh, I go to talk to somebody who's got the sin of uh, alcoholism and I'm afraid that I'm going to become an alcoholic too? I don't think so. But there is the possibility when I go to talk to the alcoholic or somebody else who has sin in their lives that I could well become judgmental. There's the chance that in going to them, I could have an attitude of judgment, of harshness, maybe not really wanting that person to be reconciled. And I think that Paul is so concerned that when the church goes to talk to someone else who has sin in his or her life, that we need to make sure that we don't fall away from the humility that God wants us to have in going and talking to the other person. And so everything seems to me to point in the direction of certainly disdain for sin. Not a watering down of the church's position on the things that God says are not in line with His will. But an attitude toward the person who sins of absolute love, absolute grace, a desire for reconciliation. And if God, please forbid, it should come to the point where we have to separate from someone else, we separate from a sinner with an attitude of longing for them to come back, of longing for them to be part of the family still, of longing for them to reconcile and to repent. And there just isn't any other room within the body of Christ for a different attitude than that. And so, here's what I'm so grateful for. We started by talking about how there is this human impulse. We saw it in Matt Damon's character. He was designed to be a killer. But something changed him. He was not the killer he was intended to be. Marie wouldn't want it. And Marie's relationship with him and her life had altered this programmed killer. So that right at the moment when he should be killing, he doesn't. And I think the church has a chance in its existence to take people who sin and for our relationships with them to alter them, for them to be changed. And the human impulse that would say to them, let's keep on sinning, might well be changed by those who go and say, we love you, we want you part of our family, we want you to walk with Christ. I hope the circumstance never comes up in your life. Hope it never happens in the life of our church again. But if it does, I pray that we can respond to that kind of situation with the attitude of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to act with human impulse. 
We don't want to act with the way in which our human natures are programmed. We want to act in ways in which our spiritual natures are programmed. We want you to live within us. And especially when we're dealing with those around us who have sinned against us or who aren't living the kind of life that you want them to live. So Father, I pray that even now, if we're thinking of someone that we know sins, that needs to change his or her life, give us wisdom and give us grace. Give us a chance to actually help change that person and move them toward you. Work through us, Lord, through your spirit to make us the reconciling elements in those relationships that we need to be. And thank you, God, for the teaching of Jesus on this very practical subject, helping us to understand how to respond to those who sin. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.